Hello, it's Martin here, electronically yours as always. Today's special guest is a, a friend of mine that I've had for many years, almost since the start of Illustrious, um, which was the early 2000s, a friend called Robin Rimbo, better known as um, Scanner. He is uh, an, a unique, uniquely talented composer, uh, and as it says on his website, it says he traverses the experimental terrain between sound and space, connecting a bewilderingly diverse array of genres. I love that. So he does a lot of sonic art. Uh, he produces concerts, installations, recordings, albums. Uh, he does stuff for film. Uh, he's in that kind of uh, territory of, of, of the more um, esoteric side of uh, electronic music composition he's not uh, as opposed to myself who's more to do with the kind of popular music world I suppose um, and I do both but you know um, but he's done works for you know all over the world I mean he's so uh, in demand um, uh, Hayward Gallery Pompidou Centre Tate Modern Kunsthalle Vienna Bolshoi Theatre, Moscow, Hanoi Opera House, Royal Opera House, etc., etc. He's done, he's scored 75 dance productions around the world, contemporary dance productions, including Merce Cunningham, Wayne McGregor. Apart from being an exceptionally nice person, uh, not in a bad way, um, I don't mean nice as in bland, he's an exceptionally intelligent and um, accessible amenable person um he, he's very collaborative uh, very self-effacing but very confident in his own talent um his most exciting work which i mentioned in the interview is the salle des départs uh it's it's an installation to help people getting over their or to deal with their grieving for their loved ones who die in, in uh, unexpected circumstances in a working morgue in paris believe it or not um, and he does a lot of work with, like I do, with architects for more esoteric purposes. He's committed, as it says on his website, to working with cutting-edge practitioners. We've done a lot of work together. He was part of my Future of Sound tour that I did. Uh, he's worked with Brian Ferry, Michael Nyman, Steve McQueen, Laurie Anderson, lots and lots of others. Um, he's a, a, a dynamo, really. Um, and I've got a lot of love for him and a lot of respect for him. Here he is, the one, the only, Scanner. Recording in progress. Recording in progress. Recording in progress. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've been in space on that, thing. Um, yes, that is correct. <laughs> um, I've just moved into this ridiculously luxurious apartment in on Marylebone Lane. <laughs> wow. Uh, I finally made it from the pavement to the penthouse. Good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's only me, Bit of product placement there. <laughs> only, uh, only it's only taken me 43 fucking years. Anyway... Um, no, we're renting this for a year until we decide what to do because I sold it in my family house. Anyway, 
But what about your personal life? How's your personal life going? <laughs> it's still going, which is <laughs> which is positive. Uh, I think it's okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, since we've seen, since I last saw other human beings, I'm okay. I'm healthy. Uh, I'm busy. I used to have a thing called an income, but let's forget about uh, that. That's just something that the kids talk about in the past. So, no, you, you, but, you don't. Well, it's not that uh, young young people aren't getting an income either. <laughs> it's true. No, it's only uh, the people at the top of the political tree that are getting an income, mm. or people who are just uh, cashing in on their equity release. Um, of course, yeah. Yeah. But I'm okay. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very, very well, to be honest. Good, good. good. Yeah. And where are you at the moment, physically? I'm in the East Midlands. I'm on the very edge of Northamptonshire. Right. I am literally about 10 minutes from the studio where Bauhaus recorded all their classic tunes. Really? And I discovered also uh, Freddie Mercury recorded as Larry Lurex in 1969. He recorded his first demos, right. which is funny. And what's the name so, of the studio? Shall we give it a plug? It, yeah, it's called Wellingborough. Well, the studio is, uh, what's the studio called? Uh, I can't remember. That's all right. Uh, yeah, I can't remember. What the, it's easy to find. Google that. But I live in a place called Wellingborough, which is where Tom York is from and apparently left probably... As soon as he as soon as he could, it's an old market town. Like many places in the UK, it's a relatively faded yeah. market town, unfortunately. But you know, it serves a good purpose. We found uh, a building that in London would cost probably six million pounds, wow. an old textile factory, wow. and set up here. And it's great. I mean, you know, it's around ten thousand square feet. It's got, if I move the camera, you can see it's got oh, large. Yeah, original yeah the ceilings are about five meters high. And it just, the most important thing, it has light. I mean, if you mm. work for yourself and you're working from home, light and space are so key. And in, in somewhere like London, it's at a premium, as we all know, that comes at a cost. Here, right. every everywhere you turn, there are windows because it's an old textile factory. And I still bump into people who used to work in this factory, which is quite nice. So I bumped into a fellow the other day. He said, I used to make suits for John Lewis. <laughs> you live. <laughs> which is fantastic. So and opposite is the old Dr. Martin factory because this whole area is where the kind of clothing. Cobblers, and, cobblers, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's in fact, it's cobblers. called Cobbler's <laughs> Loft is the building right opposite. So... But it's great because it's only 40 minutes from London on the fast train. And to be honest, I lived in London all my life until I was 50. And if you've lived in London, as you well know, it can take just as long to get from one side of London to oh. the other. So moving somewhere like here, in fact, means I can be at King's Cross in 40 minutes. So I can jump on a Eurostar. Uh, if I need to go somewhere, which I can't at the time being. But, you know, the mechanics of it all work out in a sense. And to be honest, much of our lives moved online before COVID and everything. We were buying things and sharing things online. So the sheer mechanics of living here aren't any different. And we have fast internet. In London, we had such slow internet, I couldn't watch a YouTube video. It was phenomenal. Oh. It was literally just... Uh, 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 yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And here is great. I mean, you know, it's, it's quite peaceful. I, I kept thinking if I was still living in a flat, in a you know, block of flats as I was in London mm. during the pandemic, in the dark, in the cold, I'd probably be quite depressed by now. I think a lot of people but, uh, were. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But actually, this has really helped. I mean, it helps your kind of mental health and 10 minutes away is the countryside, you know, you, by foot. 
So you can get out into the countryside and kind of disappear, which is beautiful, really. Oh, yeah, beautiful. I'm just going to fill people in mm. uh, who are listening to the podcast about you, because um, whilst I'm, of course, incredibly familiar with your work, <laughs> I'm in that world, um, but um, people in the general public need to understand mm. the depth of your experience and artistic craft. So I just was looking at your website and your biogony website, and it says, "Traverse mm. is the experimental terrain." Ooh, mm. uh, between sound and space. Ooh, double space. ooh. Space, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Connecting a bewilderingly diverse array of genres. Uh, since 1991, has been intensely active in sonic art, producing concerts, installations, recordings, etc. Um, and basically, what you do, if uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is a wide range of implementations of electronic composition. That's kind of it in there, and performance. Mm. Yeah, and that's so, a, a reasonable description. I mean, I tend to live in a world which is joining lots of dots, as you're very familiar with, but lots of people aren't familiar with any of those dots. So I enjoy the fact of chance encounters mm -hmm. and making things happen and ever since I was a teenager, I've been interested in not doing one thing. Mm. So I never considered an idea of making a career as a musician in any traditional sense or as a visual artist or as a, or as a writer. I was always fascinated by all those bits in between and all the connection points, you know, and to me, equally, I'm as interested in music as I am in literature, yeah. as I am in film, as I am in visual arts. And I think a lot of people are like that, thankfully, but it's a, it's a world I'm happiest in. Yeah, there was, um, in the past, I was uh, on a committee about inter interdisciplinary art practice for the uh, Arts Council, and it's still not properly catered for. I mean, the, you know, the, mm. I think most people have a kind of multi-thread career now. Um, mm. I mean, we, we're very similar in a lot of respects in as much as we... Um, we, we, we uh, make it a, des you know, that's, a, that's an ambition for us. Whereas mm. I think a lot of people kind of fall into it and they go, well, I can't make enough money doing, you know, uh, playing in a pub or whatever it is. I'm going to have a go at this. My mate wants a sound installation. I'll have a go at that. <laughs> and so on and so forth. But what I'm really interested in is your, how, how did you go to art college? No, I studied literature, English literature. So I was always interested in books. I had no intention of being a writer or anything. But, uh, I mean, the funny thing is, you know, I, I'm not sure if it still works in schools. You've had kids, so maybe they've had to go yeah. through this. But we used to have things called career lessons. And basically uh, a, a fireman would come in and say, morning, lads, you know, if you work hard and, you you know, you, you, you follow my example, you can all become firemen. Or a lawyer would come in and say, you know, jolly good chaps, you know, you can... Uh, become a, you know, a lawyer. And I wasn't interested in any of those things. You know, I, uh, in some sense, was quite pretentious because I had to fill out a form at the end of the lesson and it had to say what you felt about the lesson and what your career was going to be. And I vividly remember writing in a slightly embarrassing way now, I realise, <laughs> I wrote, I wish to escape the accretions of contemporary work life. <laughs> Basically, my teacher probably thought, what a wanker, but then said, what do you want to do, Robin? You know, we need to know what you want to do. So I just wrote journalist because it was easy. Yeah. You know, I had no intention of being a journalist. My father was a writer, uh, a motorcycle journalist, but I had no intention of doing that. 
And I knew, absolutely knew when I was 14 or 15, what I wanted to be doing, but there's no job you can apply for, you know, to do that kind of thing. And I find it remarkable personally for myself to be in a position much older to have found that place. You know, I feel quite lucky. So I studied literature because I loved literature and loved books. And I love making the connections. I studied a contemporary literature course. So it meant I was reading books that were written 20 or 30 years before I studied, which meant I understood it. They spoke about things that had a meaning to my life. But I also studied, a, I took a history of art course and philosophy and history of ideas, which meant then if I looked at uh, a, a Dickens novel at uh, that period, I'd also look at the history, I'd look at the philosophy, and I'd look at the visual arts. And so all those dots connected and it's funny because that was at Kingston University. And then later on, I discovered all these people that went to Kingston. You know, Richard James went to Kingston, like, you know, a few years later than me. And suddenly there were all these wild creative connections that emerged, which is amazing. Yeah, I think creativity is unfortunately um, an underappreciated term in, in education now. I mean, it seems to me that the current government want to kind of hobble it as much as possible so that mm. they can uh, make us all into Morlocks or whatever it's called. <laughs> uh, whichever, whichever dystopian novel you choose. Yes. Um, they want to make us into, into uh, uh, operators with no soul. Mm. And I think soul is a large, um, creativity is a large part of soul. And um, so, and, and also I am uh, another part of my uh, theory is that um, we've become obsessed with, you know, obviously profit. We've not become obsessed with profit, or else we're doing what we're doing. <laughs> I mean, I meant the world in general has become obsessed with spreadsheets and profit and mm. bottom line, return on investment, and all that stuff. And that none of the none of the more um, more uh, uh, vague and but beautifully. Uh, important connected tissue of creativity is acknowledged can be acknowledged in in that mm. kind of hyper rationalized form, and um, so we and people like me and you end up, you know, designing our own uh, job descriptions. Mm. Um, it does make it a tricky one, doesn't it? Because you bump into somebody on a train or a plane, and you start chatting, and they say, "What do you do?" I used to say I was a hairdresser. Because that was simpler, and then I was on a I was on a Eurostar train, and there were these two women from Australia, and they said, "Oh, we're we're hairdressers too. What kind of a style are you look? No. Like? no, what is the chance?" And I just had to say, "I'm sorry, I just made that up because I didn't want to talk about what I actually do." And then I thought I was insulting them because I said I was a hairdresser, and there, were, there was nothing meant to be demeaning about it. But yeah, it is a tricky one. You know, I know when I moved home, and the removal guys who helped picked up a keyboard and said, play us a tune, mate, play us a tune. Play that one that goes, da, 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 da. <laughs> I'm not a jukebox either. You know, it is, a, it is a really tricky one, you know. So sometimes it's easier just to say, you know, I'm a, if somebody says, are you a musician? I say, yeah, I just play the keyboards. And they just think I'm in a band. Yeah. Or I play covers at, you know, parties and weddings and that kind of thing. At this rate, I may be doing it. No, <laughs> I'm not that good anyway. Uh, but it, it is interesting. It's a, it's a good point you make, which is that you have to design, in a sense. You have to find this structure and shape for yourself. And there are no parameters. And even here we are in 2021, and funding structures don't understand that either. No. You know, I know I've, I've tried in my kind of 26-plus years of being a professional musician to apply for funding, 
I got it once in 26 years. Shit. Yeah, and I've given up now, actually. I gave up. I was rejected a few months ago, and I just thought, you know, I have no energy for this because you yeah. have to fit into these particular boxes and you have to say what it is. And you think, no, actually, I just keep doing it myself. I remain kind of, I'd like to say, fiercely independent as much as possible, actually, to be truthful. I mean, there's a bit of kind of... Um... It's meant to be that way about it all. I think yeah. I, I, I'm in I'm in complete agreement with you. I can no longer tolerate filling in forty page. What's your inside leg measurement? Uh, what's your blood pressure to get yeah. an arts council grant? You know, uh, I just can't do it anymore. I'm not interested in their points fucking system. No, no. Uh, they can show it up their ass. <laughs> I will never get another. All right, I'll never get one anyway. No, I'll sample that for my new single. And oh my god! But anyway, mm. both, um, both. I mean, I've got a lot of admiration for what you've done, and we've worked oh, together in the thank past you. Yeah. and done stuff. Um, and a lot of what you do, as I said, making up your own job description, it's like very much one job leads to another. It's mm. pretty much a recommendation engine. Mm really um and the the petrol that goes in that engine is the excellence of your work because if it if it's no good no you know you're not going to get that's that's a that's a stub right you have to move in another direction (laughs) yes so um i mean and and sometimes we do things which are less successful obviously Mm. but you know i'm just looking at the range of stuff that you've done in your um I mean, you know, you've performed, you've done professional productions for like the Tate Modern in London, the Kunsthalle in Vienna, Bolshoi Theatre in Moscow, lots of dance stuff. Mm. I lo- I mean, personally, I've been looking enough to do a couple of things at the Royal Ballet but uh, and for Michael Clark, but uh, that's it. And I would mm. love to do more of that stuff. What, how, do you, in, do you, lo- you clearly do love and people love you doing uh, composition for dance. Tell us about mm. that. That's funny. I've uh, here we are at, on a on a morning having a chat. This morning I had a meeting at eight thirty about a new dance work in Amsterdam really? for next year, which is funny. I mean, to date I've I've composed about seventy five scores for dance. Yeah. Began in the late like nineteen ninety six ninety seven, purely by chance. And it's a funny story. This fellow wrote to me from a tour in France. And it was the centre of choreography and just said, Lee, I'm the director and the choreographer here uh, responsible for new productions. And I would like to work with you on a new piece. Now, I mean, imagine these are days before internet. So this was a very awkward, clunky phone call yeah. in bad school French and poor English you know, <laughs> on, on both sides. And lots of faxes were exchanged. So then I was still working in a job and I had to phone in sick to my job so I could go to France have this meeting. And so I sat down so nervous with a notepad and I sat with this guy, Danielle, and I said, look, can you tell me a bit about the production? He said, okay, we have 10 dancers. So I wrote 10 dancers. He said, <laughs> it's uh, 45 minutes long, 45 minutes long. And that's it. <laughs> I thought, so I've come all the way to France so you can say two lines which could have easily been on a fax. And I had to come home and write this score. And I wrote this music. And in those days, you had to then record it onto a DAT and make a copy of the DAT and then send that off by courier and then wait for them. And I heard nothing. And the weeks passed. And I'd never worked on this kind of stuff before and thought, well, perhaps it just didn't work. I don't know. So then I plucked up the courage to be in touch again. And uh, his assistant uh, answered the phone and said, 
oh, we absolutely love it. Could we have 10 minutes more? It's just totally bizarre, you know, and then the production happened. And then subsequently over the years, as you say, it's a bit like feeling like the, the, the good electrician or the good plumber. You do good work and people recommend you to come and unplug their toilets. Well, I unplug, you know, uh, toilets all around the world creatively. And uh, it's led on to all these productions. I think, you know, one important thing is that I, I lay myself open to risk. Mm, I accept exactly. challenges. And you, you know this from much experience. People don't often do that. You know, they like to follow a pattern and a very safe pattern. And it's intriguing because it's something that's never appealed to me. I like trying to challenge myself and seeing what I'm capable of. And sometimes it may fail, but you don't know until you try. And the dance work has just it's continued, even with poor reviews. I had a review in the, in fact, our favorite newspaper, the Daily Telegraph. <laughs> and uh, it, it, they said uh, they reviewed the piece in the opening line of this dance piece from about three or four years ago said, I would rather have my fingernails pulled out <laughs> one by one than listen to this music ever again. And that was the opening to a dance review. <laughs> of course, the piece sold out and uh, was a great success. But, you know, thank you to the Daily Telegraph for such a bad review because it really helped sell tickets. But, you know, I think what's really interesting with dance particularly is that people are not coming for the music generally. They come in for the movement of the bodies and the light and the whole theatrical experience. Music may be part of it, but it's not the reason. And it means you have a lot of freedom. And so I've been able to write pieces and very sometimes exploratory works that people would never maybe take notice of. But suddenly with a dance context, you've yeah. got this piece. I mean, I made a piece called Split with an Australian choreographer called Lucy Gurin, which is an extraordinary piece, two dancers, for one hour. The score is two and a half minutes long. That's all it is. And it loops around and it right. literally goes, dum, 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 dum. It's not Jaws. I'm making it sound like Jaws here. But it has this pulse that opens and closes. And it's it's like it comes out of the earth and then expands and then contracts and goes underneath the soil again and comes out. And it sounds fantastic. You know, I don't mean that arrogantly because it just, you, you don't sense that it's just a loop. And this piece is with the two dancers who are on a stage. And then they draw a line down the centre of the stage and then they dance on that half of the stage. And then they draw a line across that half and then they're on a quarter of the stage. And the two women just get closer and closer till they're literally in a kind of like Samuel Beckett sort of style kind of atmosphere, just cramped really close to one that. another. It's amazing. But all the time this music is just going dum 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 it's, it's really amazing. I mean, you can watch, it's like a couple of minute clip. You can find it called Split online. And it really is a phenomenal piece. And I've been yeah. lucky to have seen it because I don't perform it live. I've been lucky to have seen the piece two or three times and it's beautiful. And yeah. I think that's what I really love about dance, you know, and also yeah. the fact is how often in your career as a, 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 a maker of sound, can you stand back or sit in the audience and experience it at the same time? I mean, usually, you know, when you perform on a stage, you're there facing an audience. You're not there in the audience mm. watching and sharing in this thing, which at the same time can be terrifying because you're sitting next to people and you're thinking, shit, they are going to hate this, aren't they? You know, <laughs> you sit there. Yeah, but you can always blame it on the dancers. That's right. Yeah. I actually sat next to people and somebody said to me, what about them? It's awful, the music. I said, I know, it's terrible, isn't it? Because I had no idea. And then I was obviously at the end, I walk up and go on stage and take a bow. Oh, yeah. It's that's shame right. that person then must they have know. Yeah. Then they know. They're not throwing uh, roses at you. They're throwing no, like, exactly. And, um, yeah, we we, uh, we did the pieces that we did for the Royal Ballet, 
was were in 3D sound. So it was like wow, very. I mean, I, you know, I was in the middle of the audience because I wanted to hear what I'd already done my work. So there was mm. nothing, there was no interaction or anything, and that was a really emotional thing because I mean, like immersive sound is emotional anyways you know but of course it, 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 this combined with the beauty of the proscenium arch thing and the and you know the incredible skill of the dancers and the lighting and it's like mm. and um yeah i mean that's i i like that when i when i can feel like oh I've bloody earned that pint you know it's that kind of thing <laughs> at the end of the day or at the end of the month when you've been composing or three months or whatever it is mm. and you go i've done everything i can do it's with the technicians now if it fucks up it's not my fault mm. uh i can sit in the audience and just let it wash over me i love yeah. I, I love that thing um so i've got a question about composing for dance though which is um do you ever do you do it as a, a, a um, an iterative process i mean do you go you go to rehearsals and they tell you mm. or do you just not- deliver a piece of music and they choreograph it yeah, I mean, if I was to be honest, direct, 80% of the time I have to write the music before anything is made. You know, so I'm literally trying to, in a way, I'm entirely responsible for the structure of the movement and how long a section is or anything because uh, there's a choreographer I worked with lots called Wayne McGregor. Yes, and I'm, yeah. I'm doing a new piece for him later this year. And I did another one a couple of years ago. Literally, they needed 60 minutes of music for a piece in, in Russia somewhere. And I wrote this music completely into the dark, in a sense. Right. And they just said, oh, could we have a few more kind of choral voices in it at one point? Because I'd use these voices. And that was it. You know, otherwise, it was as given. But That was their notes. Yeah. And then sometimes, you know, when I've, when I've worked with Dutch National Ballet, as I have done a number of times over the years, that's much more specific. You know, the opening scene is seven minutes long and we want this kind of tension and a character comes on. So you need to introduce a kind of new theme for that. Or... Right. The prince is gay, but we need to show that he's gay through the music. Can we do that? <laughs> that was the most challenging one, you know. So, so how do I how do I show without being, I don't know, kind of wrong in a sense that the prince is gay through the sound? I mean, that was such a ridiculous challenge. You know, in the end, it turned into a disco, and I said, "That's perfect. That's what we need." I thought, wow. Let's follow every cliche you can have. Yeah. Wow. So. Uh, you know, it's it's always a challenge. And I think that's what I really like, you know, mm-hmm. is, you know, I, I walk into the dark, in a sense, in, the, in these projects and you meet the people. And then sometimes I'm going into rehearsals and seeing it, but it does it offer me anything watching all the movement of the dance? Not especially, to be honest, you know, it doesn't, it's great to see, but I, I quite enjoy just having videos sent to me and being able to enjoy it that way oh. and then kind of watch it. It's just all the mechanics sometimes of travelling. You think, you know, can I really can I really be bothered to travel all that far to, but, you know, to watch it? Do you have, um, do they, I mean, presumably they give you a, the, the theme that they want to explore or do you just, mm. or, is it, or is there a proportion of your work which is purely abstract? I mean, this, the work I'm doing at this very good moment is a good example. It's with, uh, it's going to be in Amsterdam. It's called Skiographia, and it's with one of the top contemporary flamenco dancers from right. Sevilla. So you're thinking flamenco. Flamenco is the one thing they don't want. What they were hoping for in the production is somebody whose body is known for flamenco and all this kind of dynamism, dy- dynamics and uh, kind of energy of flamenco. 
but to throw it into something completely different. So what I'm trying to do is show is kind of throw sonic shapes at this guy that completely oh, kind right. of twist around the possibility. Because first of all, I thought, maybe I'm expected to do flamenco. Have I really got to learn flamenco guitar? <laughs> How am I honestly going to be able to do this? I can just about play the blues, let alone flamenco. You could do an electronic version. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, like the foot, the foot stamps. Well, I tried with the rhythms. I tried a piece yeah. just with all the rhythms. And then I thought, isn't that just what he wants and that's not what he wants so i'm trying to write pieces that throw him in a mm -hmm. sense you know right. so if there's a piece that's kind of propelling pulses and energy i do something that's really stripped back and drifting right. you know so uh -huh. and then he has to kind of respond and it's, it actually it feels even more alien and powerful with him moving really fast well, whilst this thing is hovering here's the thing with the royal ballet uh, and, and to a certain extent with the Michael Clark thing, um, I found the most impactful things were when you, you know, because they're trained to make as little sound as possible, right? So it just looks like mm. floating or they're moving in some kind of uncanny way. But I found the most impactful things were when you could hear them breathing and mm. out of breath and, 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 you know, the sound of their feet squeaking on the floor. Or, yeah, true. I love all that stuff. So, in other, so I was just thinking about your example of a, a, a something that's a section that's that's kind of fast mm. and embodies the energy of flamenco. But if you had something calm and kind of quiet underneath it, then the then the focus would suddenly pull to their movement and their breathing. And so I exactly. can see, I, I can see all that. Um, now I want to move on quickly. Mm, of to, course. Um, to you know the your process of composition, I suppose. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, you've explained about dance and everything, but mm. I mean, I, do you start from an original idea? You go right. You wake up in the morning and you have your Weetabix and you go, "Oh, I'm going to write something about the you know <laughs> climate change," you know, or you know any mm. random subject. I mean, how do you? Do you wait for a spark from something? Do you collect ideas and then, mm. go, or do you, do you, how does it work? So I generally, I, I lead quite a disciplined life. I get up early every day. I stop work at six o'clock every day. I never work in the evenings, try never to work at the weekend. And I'm in the studio by 8.30 at the, <laughs> at the latest. You are running Magritte. <laughs> yeah, true. And uh, I do administration, first of all. That's what I do. I catch up on mails and that kind of thing and watch some videos and tutorials of things. But then often around 11, I begin just making sound, playing. I call it playtime. You know, at the moment, with less activity in the world going on, I don't have the pressure of usually I have deadlines to meet and I have things, you know, often what I would do is come in and I'll start working immediately, just trying to conjure up some ideas. But the one thing I've never felt short of, which is pleasing, is inspiration. You know, I literally just start playing. You know, I may find a sound I like. I may have a new toy in the studio that inspires yeah. me. And I have enough options of choices of toys, creative toys, that they shift my direction every time, which is really exciting, actually. Mm -hmm. You know, so there is no kind of rule. I mean, in the past, you know, I had a band in the past. And so with a band, you follow certain rules, you know, one or two figures start to write the music, you develop these things together and you have the finished piece, you rehearse it. And that piece is the same pretty much every time you play it. I make this sound, this music. I can't really repeat it. 
I don't save lots of things, and some things are recorded live anyway. So there's no way I can play it live as such unless mm -hmm. I'm just using samples of it or something. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, I mean, early in my career, I was never interested in being a jukebox in that sense. Mm -hmm. If I had, if I had the fortune of having pieces of music that people really want to hear, then I would try my utmost to be able to play them. But I don't, you know, and it it's more about the kind of atmosphere and the energy of those ideas happening in real time. So recently I've been making these live performances online on a band camp live. And in fact, they're exciting because that's literally me playing live. Right. And only knowing the first five minutes of what I'm going to do. Right. I have no plan for the next 40 minutes after that. And so it's really me literally standing there thinking, what the hell shall I do now? You know, as I'm doing something in real time, and then that's thrilling, trying... isn't it? Yeah, it's great. It's really fun. It's really good. I mean, we I did a, a, an improvisational uh, piece with the uh, Radiophonic Workshop guys, and I've never done that in my life. I wow. thought I was going to do it, and I just turned up. They brought the synths. I didn't even take my own <laughs> instruments. They said, and they had a whole bunch of them going. I suppose I'll play the Jupiter Eight then. I've not played that for ages. <laughs> And it was really good. And we ended up with an album recorded in three oh. hours, you know. Uh, I quite imagine. I mean, a lot yeah, of that's it was it, rubbish, yeah. but some of it was transcendental. You yeah. Know? Um, and that's the beauty of improvisation. And that's mm. the beauty of letting your subconscious control what's going on. I mm. think. Um, it sounds like I'm lecturing uh, to my students this, but I think they'd find this oh. conversation very interesting. Um, so let's just briefly talk about uh, Future of Sound, which we did together. That was mm. fun, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Um, yeah. I've never mentioned it in any of my podcasts, so I'll just give people <laughs> a quick piece of background. Um, I got, speaking of the Arts Council, they funded this, so I, I shouldn't be so rude. Um, they funded two tours called Future of Sound, which was my idea. I was getting bored with uh, showing off my 3D sound system to like three people at a time uh, in my studio in Brixton. And uh, I thought, fuck this for a game of soldiers, I'm going to do a tour and we'll do some tours in small venues. And I'm very fortunate to do places like um, the Royal Institution and, and, and you know, really credible arts venues around the country and, and some universities as well. And um, Scanner kindly agreed to do some stuff with me. It's basically to show off 3D sounds, sound system with different disciplines. And um, I'm looking back on that now and I'm thinking... That was all on autopilot. I had no fucking idea what I was doing. Even the idea of emceeing this bizarre kind of gong show uh, format. Um, it was, a, I kind of liked the idea that it was, it felt like kind of show business in some mm. strange way. But the, the actual content was from another planet, you know. And um, anyway, I just sort of mentioned that. How did you find that when we did that? Quite fantastic, actually. I mean, to me, it was like a, a piece of theatre. Yeah. It was like a piece of theatre introducing people to ideas of sound that they may never have experienced or come across. I mean, you know, it was such a, you chose such a, and curated such a variety of voices from people who were talking about the kind of sonic sound of stones and ancient sites <laughs> through to kind of psychedelic sounds and all sorts of things. I found it extraordinary and I made lots of friends through it, most importantly. I mean, that's one of the best things about any work that we do. You make friends. And there were such great thinkers there. You know, I still remember, uh, you know, some of the shows. We went up to Sage, uh, the Gateshead. Oh, yeah, we went up there right. and did a show up there, I remember. And I remember you demonstrating some of the best kind of Newcastle accents I'd ever heard at that point <laughs> in time. Good, Very good impersonation. We don't have to do them on air now, don't worry. 
But no, I mean, really, it, and the, the fact that there were such capacity audiences for these events. It's amazing, isn't it? For something that on paper you might think, taking a risk here a bit, aren't we? This is a little bit edgy. But people embraced it, and I think that's what was so great. And because it was done in such a way that it wasn't sort of 45-minute academic lectures by people that were kind of short show and tells sort of 15 or 20 minutes by people that made it really exciting because if somebody if somebody didn't perhaps interest the listener in the audience there's another bus coming along exactly yeah, yeah it was great it's that one's full and um yeah so it was kind of and i think the fact that people didn't know what to expect made it more edgy and interesting it's a bit, mm. i suppose it had more in common with like an open mic night for like comedians or something yeah true but with really quite esoteric stuff yeah. <laughs> anyway and I, a I few really, jokes yeah I and really a few jokes it. of course yeah. and a few jokes but i still get a lot of um a lot of the artists that i invited to take part in that i mean like luciana hale mm, of course yeah she she regularly emails me like mm. every six months saying do you know, it's amazing the people I met on that tour I'm still in contact with and thank yeah. you for helping me develop my practice and blah, blah, blah. I'm going, fucking hell, I'd better do another <laughs> application to the Arts Council because that's the sort of stuff they love, isn't it? Of course. The idea of distributing stuff. Anyway. Um, okay, moving on. Um, s tell us about this amazing project, which I always loved when you explained it. Um, uh, the Salle des Départs. Mm. Tell us about yeah, that. That's, yeah, that's a curious one because, you know, like lots of pieces of work that come through, you never quite know what they're going to be. So this was an email that literally said, uh, Dear Robin, uh, I am you know, running a, a, a project in a hospital in France and the chief architect there is interested in you working with him. It's to soundtrack uh, a morgue. It's not every day you get an email that literally says, basically, would you, you know, would you like to write music for the dead? You need which is one of, which is one of, yeah, exactly. It's one of my biggest audiences, quite obviously. <laughs> and I said yes, having no idea what it was. Went to the building, and it's interesting because the architect. This is how chance happens. The architect was Ettore Spalletti, Italian architect, who makes these kind of beautiful liquid light blue rooms. Really, very simple, very minimal, but absolutely beautiful. He'd been commissioned to design a working morgue in the hospital. The hospital is one just on the outskirts of Paris that specialises in, unfortunately, in kind of sudden death, like road accident victims and so on. In fact, with Diana, that's where she was going to be driven to, wow. allegedly, but they never made it. And uh, he realised that the, the, the doctor, uh, the doctor uh, Michel Darigon, the, the chief pathologist, said that one of the most challenging things to help people is saying farewell to a loved one, to make that into a, can't say positive experience, but just to soften the blow. And so he commissioned the architect and they were looking for sound. And so they, they came to me and they also came to David Lang from the group Bang on a Can. And interestingly, David Lang, who's a good friend of mine, wrote a piece for it, but it's essentially a very melancholic uh, piece of orchestral music. And that's not what they really wanted because you're already heartbroken. And arguably that's the last thing you want to hear is a piece of heartbreaking music inside a situation that's already destroying you. And so I started working on this piece. And to be honest, to this day, it's one of the most difficult things I've ever done because essentially you're writing a soundtrack. And I realized that quite a few projects I've worked on are writing work for an audience that doesn't want to hear anything. 
in a sense, <laughs> you know. People are not going to the hospital to hear Scanner's soundtrack. <laughs> no. They go in there for this awful reason. To buy the CD on the way out. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> on, the, on, on the merchandise stand with a T-shirt. <laughs> and uh, it was very difficult. I had no idea what to write. And then I was at home one day and I was trying to work in my studio and there was a torrential storm outside, horrendous weather. And I thought it feels so good to be indoors and look through the window and see a storm. You feel so safe and so secure. And I thought perhaps that's what needs to be the main body of this, this work. This is back in 2001, 2002. So I essentially collaged together all these environmental recordings I had and then wrote a piece of piano music and then processed the piano music. So the music sounds like it's playing from about sort of one or two kilometers away with the window open. And the work plays at a volume in the space such that if it was switched off, you would realize it was there. But if you're there, you don't quite realize it's there. It's almost like the, the sound of a, a radiator or an air conditioning system. So yeah, yeah. if somebody suddenly switches that off, you think, oh, wow, yeah. You know, or a projector in a room, when you switch it off, you suddenly realize how noisy that was. So it's a very subtle thing. Interestingly, in very French, there was an opening in the morgue of a working hospital. So everybody drinking wine to celebrate the opening of the work. And then suddenly we all had to run out because somebody had died. Shit. And uh, they suddenly had to use the, uh, the, the the space. And it's bizarre to think we're standing outside and someone is inside bidding farewell to a loved one. I mean, for me, it's it's very curious because at that time, 2002, I'd had some experience of death. Subsequently, all my family have died. There's absolutely no one left. And I've had to identify bodies twice in hospitals in those kind of environments. And it's not a pleasant experience, you know. When my mother died... It's very interesting because seven years ago I was in the hospital and I had to switch off her life support system. Oh. So I just had to sit there and basically wait for her to slip away. Mm. So what did, the, what did the hospital do? The doctors walked across. They gave me a cheap kind of throwaway radio, switched it on to something like Happy FM oh. and just left it in the room with me. Not a public oh. room. I mean, in a, in a ward, but they just draw the curtain around. So suddenly I'm sitting there completely numb with pain listening to Rod Stewart no, and, you know, whatever, you know, all this stuff that you think, uh, you, you, you're not actually thinking, this thing is just there. And the idea was to help me through that moment, to help my brother and I sit there and hold my mother's hand as she disappeared. And it was so painful thinking, I can never hear, I mean, Rod Stewart probably makes a lot of people cry, <laughs> but to, 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 to have those signifiers now, whenever I hear any of that music, it suddenly brings back that moment. But now I realise even more how poignant and how valuable the project was I made in the hospital in France. Because I asked them and I said, look, because this isn't a record that comes out and somebody reviews it, because it's not a concert where people come along and they clap or say things to you afterwards, there is no feedback process. And it's very interesting you know this with installation work yourself. The feedback process that we're very familiar with, which is people review it and say things to you, doesn't happen in the same yeah. way. So they, they introduced a, a kind of guest book and they sent me copies of it every now and then, photocopies. And it was so beautiful to see the things that people had written, how much it had helped them. And so, you know, when I look back at my career beyond all the kind of whatever it may be, strange and wonderful things, that is one that I would really point to that actually has played a much greater role far beyond me as well. And importantly for me, it's absolutely nothing to do with fame, fortune, record sales or anything like that. You know, and then you realize 
the true meaning of creating and the true value of creating art in a yeah. sense, you know, yeah. that it can actually help people in such a way, you know, that is so important. And it's, it's something that's so easily forgotten, unfortunately, in our times now when it's easy to complain about, you know, governments not supporting you know, the arts and everything, but they, they really don't, they fail to understand the absolute greater value it plays in people's lives. You know, in the last 18 months, lots of people have turned to looking at, you know, like playing with their cameras and photographing the world yeah. around them and recording things. That's what they're doing. They're, they're, they're capturing and shaping the world around them in a particular way, you know, and that is creating art. You know, you have artists like Joseph Boyce, who are a big influence on me growing up, an artist who celebrated that, you know, art is, is something that can change not only the environment, but people as well. Of course. And, and it's those kind of thoughts that have always stayed with me and are, are very, very important. So the Salad of Depart project, which in a sense is the Departure Lounge, is quite a playful name, but still mm. plays a really important role in ways of thinking for me, actually, when I make work. Yeah, there was a film, wasn't there, where... Um... Oh, what film was it? God damn it. Where the... Um, uh... mm. The guy's lying in a room with immersive uh, projections and this beautiful... And it's like a science fiction film. Is it the Andromeda strain or something? It could well be, yeah. I think that rings a bell. Um, and um, it was really... It really had an impact on me. I thought, mm. that's such a great idea. They knew, he knew he was dying and he was in this beautiful environment. And in fact, when I went, went to... Cura I curated the... The immersive uh, sensory room at uh, Three Way Special Educational Needs School in Bath. That was a big influence on me. I thought, hmm. well, if these kids are not stupid, a lot of them just find it hard to communicate, right? And they want to feel comforted and stimulated and everything. And the, the received wisdom there was, oh, no, these children can't face any kind of stimulation. It frightens them. <laughs> yeah, the kind of stimulation you're giving them would frighten them. Put them yeah. in a dark room and, and put and flash coloured lights in front of them. That's not the point. Uh, anyway, there's all that. So mm. I, uh, there's a couple of common themes that me and you have. Um, one is this idea of this very low-level kind of ambient uh, composition stuff, which I have now in a very pretentious way, come to address as uh, is, uh, like sonic perfume, really. It's there, it's very impactful, but it's below the conscious mind. Uh, and I, I love that notion of composition for that purpose. It's really like the Eno you know, original ambient manifesto, I suppose. Mm. But it's, it's almost... I believe in all that synesthetic stuff. I'm sure you mm. do. You know, I think we're all synesthetic. And so, uh, but also the idea of sonic muralism, uh, which is another term that I pretentiously use, which when I did a huge uh, installation in Mexico City and I saw all those beautiful Rivero, uh, Rivero, mm. Rivero, um, uh, murals in the different places all over Mexico. And I thought, you know, people's art, you know, art that's meant to appeal to everyone, not mm. some exclusive group, not somebody who understands, you know, with the provenance of, of a particular style mm. or even the brand of a style. And I think you are, you, you are kind of like part of that sonic muralist movement as well because you incorporate, like I do, a lot of spoken word in, mm. in, in various things. I remember we did 
uh, a fantastic um, piece together, and you did the thing of all the different animals. Oh yes, uh, sounds of love. love. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, it sounds a love. Yes, yeah, it was beautiful, and we did it in three D with all the animals kind of floating about like ghosts. Yeah, like Randy ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> Randy, I love that word. It's very sensitive. <laughs> uh, um, anyway, um, so we're getting close to the end now, but there's a few things we've got to cover. Mm. Um, I want to talk to you about your original scanner work, which mm. is what started it all off. So just give us a précis of what inspired that. Yeah, it's an interesting period. I mean, I, in, in res- retrospect, I think of it as like a suite of works. It began in the late 80s and really was released in the early 90s. And it was through the discovery of a simple thing, a radio device called a scanner. What it would allow me to do was more than an FM radio you'd have at home where at one end of the frequency you could pick up the police or sometimes you'd pick up taxi cabs. This was extended from like zero to a thousand on the kind of FM scale. Right. At certain points, you could then tune into analog mobile phones. And I realized how fascinating it would be to use those within these kind of strange, dystopian, organic, urban kind of soundscapes I was making. At the time, I was trying to record people in the supermarket, on the underground, you know, that kind of thing. And it's always very noisy. And suddenly, there I was, literally the fly on the wall in this intimate situation. And I use these voices in the work in a very controversial way. 2000, uh, sorry, 1991, 1992 was before the internet was around. It was before we were really having the discussions that are still going on today and still not resolved about public and private space. So in some ways, I was also fascinated by the conversations that could emerge from this, you know, that the morality questions, is this right? Is this wrong? You know, what should we be sharing? What shouldn't we be sharing? Should we be cautious? All those kind of things. So at that time, I was also involved in lots of kind of cyber technology conferences. And this the world was opening and kind of discovered. It was a very exciting time because the world was kind of discovering itself again yeah. in a way. And electronic music was kind of kicking off with all that kind of, you know, early warp record scene and everything. It was a very dynamic period. And so I released a whole series of records and then made performances, which I were really important and still are important today to me, because I stood on a stage, be it the Purcell Room in London or somewhere in New York. I would stand there with nothing prepared but the, the scanner, and I would scan through the airwaves till I found a voice. So it'd be going, and then, and somebody talking, and that would be introducing the concert. So I'd stand there in France. I'd stand there in Germany and do the same thing and then start playing around that. Wow. And I'd take the voices and loop them and manipulate them. And it was a very exciting time. You know, then the network switched over to a digital network, which made it more difficult. Then September the 11th happened and you couldn't really travel with such a device anymore. It was just too dangerous. You were deemed a criminal, basically. And I thought, it's really not worth going to prison for this. I believe in my art, but I'm not going to go as far yeah. as being arrested for carrying this device and being a terrorist. So because at the time, uh, my, my tag, the press we using was telephone terrorist. Oh, no. Yeah. And it's not, it's not one you necessarily want to hang on to your CV. It's a little no, bit not really, sketchy. No. So, uh, yeah, but it's, it's an exciting period and introduced these ideas of public and private space to people's conversations that weren't happening at that time. Interesting. 
Wow. Um, hmm. Okay, and that, and of course, from that blossomed your entire career. Really, is quite so perversely. Yeah, yeah perversely, um, which just goes to show anybody who claims that they've got a kind of roadmap that they're following to success is talking a load of arse, in my view. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a very valid point. Organically, right? Yeah, it is a really valuable point because I, I've rarely know of people who've thought, you know, I mean. You, I've I've given talks at universities as you know as you as you have and you talk to students and they they want tips to how to be in inverted commas successful. It generally doesn't work that kind of stuff. That you can offer all kinds of advice, but you have to have the drive, the dynamic, and the willingness to take risks yeah. and not make decisions only upon money. Lots of people seem to yeah. discuss things only upon the economics of things, where in fact, that's. It's on my scale of things to remember, but it's not number one, you know. Exactly. Number one, I have to enjoy this stuff. You know, I need a personal reward and challenge from it. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. And you know that feeling. You know, it's yeah. it's about wanting to make something happen. And if there's a budget, that's even greater. But sometimes I say yes to things when there's no money because I want this thing to happen. Exactly. I mean, yeah, the £5,000 you're paying me today for this is, is welcome. Yeah. But yeah. you didn't have to pay me that. I don't. Uh, yeah. My, my people talk to your people. Yeah. My, your people rang me this morning. Yeah. Oh, I, right. I got the, I said, look, don't pay me the full 10. Just pay me the half. Uh, that's perfectly fine. <laughs> very funny. You're yes. a funny guy. Um, I try. Okay. Um, <laughs> A great raconteur, I think. Um, I, to, to, we're getting close to the end now, so um, we're near to the salle de départ. Yes. And, um, oh, I just want to mention that you've worked with all sorts of people like Brian Ferry and Michael Nyman and Laurie, and Laurie Anderson, Steve McQueen. I mean, you know what? We're not worthy. Um, Again, it's like you. You've worked with lots of famous people and then you realise they're all chance things most times. Yeah, that's, like, that's exactly it. So completely. this is... This is the smash hits part of the uh, of the interview where I ask you favourite things. So, okay. Okay. And I don't uh, let people know in advance so we get a spontaneous response. So, um, What's your favourite film? Uh, or one of them? Uh, lots, as you would have as well. Yeah. Uh, it's a choice between uh, really cheesy comedies or classic art house. So cheesy comedies would probably be the last Starsky and Hutch film, which I've seen many times. And I think really? it's absolutely, really yeah, absolutely, like I think it's, it's absolutely, I've got to re-examine that, I think. Yeah, I think it's that. And uh, the one with Simon Pegg, the police film, which is an absolute oh, yeah. gem. Hot Fuzz. Uh, Hot Fuzz is absolutely amazing as, as comedies go. Mm. In terms of art house, probably something like The Conversation, Francis Ford yeah. Coppola, The Conversation, which is still such a great film I, mean, I must have seen it you know quite a lot of times now oh, and yeah. so yeah, powerful Gene Hackman right yeah from the opening scene of like zooming in and the sound by Walter Murch was so inspiring to me when I first saw that as a teenager absolutely amazing that probably changed your perception of yeah excitement to do with sound yeah yeah you don't realize that at the time of course because you're young it came out yeah. in 73 so I probably saw it when I was a teenager but yeah had a huge yeah. influence on me I agree uh, favorite book yeah, wow. Lots of books here. I have a favourite author, B.S. Yeah. Johnson, Brian Stanley Johnson, British uh, writer who killed himself in 1974, wrote a book called The Unfortunates. I discovered him because I bought a book in a charity shop when I was about 13, and it had photographs of other books in there. And I had a photograph of The Unfortunates, and I thought, a man has written a book that's in a box. The Unfortunates came out in a series of sections. I think it was 27 sections all kind of bound together. Wow. You read the beginning and the end and all the others you shuffled around. So 
you know, B.S. Johnson was a kind of William Burroughs meets Samuel Beckett, wow. but in a much funnier way writer. And that's the thing. He was an avant-garde British writer who was very, very funny, but played lots of games with you as the author and, and you as the reader. So you'd read a book and there's one of his books where you're reading through and suddenly there's a hole cut in the page. And when you look through the page, it says, and then he died swiftly by a knife blade or something. So you're not going forward thinking, I wonder what's going to happen to him. You already know. The Unfortunates was such an inspiration, though, because I remember reading that thinking, this is so magical. It's a celebration in a way of a friend of his that died, a football journalist. So it's about him going to the football match and all his memories of the match. And subsequently, I collected every one of B.S. Johnson's books. He's now a more kind of funky name. There's a biography published, but fantastic writer. And as I say, avant-garde but easy to read and funny, which how often is the avant-garde funny? This sums you up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Amusing. Avant-garde comedian. Avant-garde. I try. Yeah. And, um, yeah. I'm not in a box. (laughs) (laughs) Yet. And you've not not died by knife wound. Um, So, um, favourite TV show, new or old or Hmm. box set or anything you want? I never watched TV growing up, growing up. It's funny, actually. Never watched it at all. The things I've watched, maybe just things I've seen recently, uh, Tales from the Loop, I really enjoyed. Yeah, that was interesting. Really gentle. gentle and melancholic and slow. The thing I really loved and everybody hated, I, probably am I going to get this wrong, Too Old to Die Young or Too Young to Die Old. I get it around the wrong way. I it's by that. Nicholas Winding Ruffin, R-E-F-N. I never know how you say his name. It's the most challenging slow motion series it is just incredible the scenes move at such a pace it has such an intensity you can imagine these kind of lurid colors with a kind of david lynch kind of atmosphere wow and it's it was in about eight parts some episodes were feature length like two hours long for a tv series and was just so intense is it on netflix it was on something like amazon or somewhere like that i saw it really strong series actually very good okay um Moment that changed you, epiphanal moment, mm. uh, or changed your direction radically. Yeah, there's a couple, couple of music ones happened to me, actually. One was uh, hearing Glenn Branca, American composer, in concert at the Riverside Studios in London. And also at the Riverside Studios back in the 80s was hearing a man called Max Neuhaus speak. Max Neuhaus. Oh, I met him. To, yeah, have you? Yeah, well, he was a percussionist with Stockhausen, if people don't know. But then he basically walked away from the classical world. And when I when I went to the talk of his in, like, whatever it was, 81 or 82, he was then designing the sound of fire engines and police cars in New York. Yes. And I remember I had no idea, you know, when I was 16 or 17, that somebody would design those sounds. Yeah. So that was absolutely life-changing for me because I thought, wow, that's somebody's job. <laughs> kind of validated my, my, my fascination with the, the things around me. I suddenly thought, wow, if it's possible to make a living from this. And interestingly, now I think about it, he had installations in museums. He has one yeah. on 42nd Street, which isn't even signposted. You basically just walk through it. It's like air that blows up with his drone. He had pieces in museums that aren't signposted. You basically pass through them. So they're incredibly subtle. They're almost invisible. You know, you can't buy CDs of Max Neuhaus. I've had a collection of books of his, and that's all you get. He's a friend of uh, Charlie Morrow. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that would make sense completely. I think I went to see one of his exhibitions in New York once. Yeah. Um, uh, Interesting, very interesting. Um, Other musical artist or composer? 
Hmm, I wonder. It'd be hard put to put it to one name, yeah, actually. No, it's, it's tough, isn't it? I mean, if, I think, them, you know. if I think through my record collection on who I have most of, in a sense, Jimi Hendrix I have the most records of, I think. Is that right? Uh, an artist who I discovered when I was probably 11 or 12, probably because my dad had played me something. And, you know, it was suddenly a mixture of kind of tape manipulation mm. and wild guitar histronics and just this figure, this kind of legendary figure. And I remember it just changing my life again, actually, in a way, hearing this stuff, realising that an instrument as familiar to my ears as a guitar could be this otherworldly, almost synthetic machine yeah. with this very shy, enigmatic figure. You know, when you late, you know, later learn that Hendrix was really unhappy with the cover of Electric Ladyland with all the naked women on it, he didn't want that at all. He was really uncomfortable with those kind of things. It was this very shy introverted man who made this extraordinary music and really and wow. someone i still listen to today yeah yeah brilliant um ambition un unfulfilled a comedy show quite clearly in my yeah. own comedy show <laughs> let's do uh, it come on yeah. <laughs> my stand-up show it i could had be like the, a, a really poor version of peep show or something yeah like exactly i had ambitions as a teenager of being a magician and i, I can see still you as a magician i can still do lots of tricks and, you know, in some secret way, I've got a very large collection of magic books, not as in black magic, but as in conjuring and everything. And I was hugely into it as a teenager. And I still go to magic shows when I can and go to exhibitions of kind of posters and things. But, uh, yeah, that's one ambition. I think it's never too late to be a magician. Oh, please. I mean, that would be great when you, if you got to, like, very late in your life and you went... Yeah, I'm just ditching the whole <laughs> sound thing. Screw this. And I'm becoming, yeah. I'm just going to pull rabbits out of a hat. Yeah. I love that. Uh, um, visual or conceptual artist? I mentioned Joseph Boyce earlier. I think the other one would be Matthew Barney, the American artist, actually. Oh, Matthew yeah. Barney, who I discovered when he was a student. I was living in Liverpool in a strange other life when I lived in a hotel when I was homeless in 97, 98. And I remember reading a review of his work in an art magazine in the local library. And he was a student and it was one of his drawing restraint works where he basically had this kind of, uh, he was a very super fit guy into sports. He had this restraint on his body and he was literally on like an elastic band trying to draw on the walls on the ceiling, but it kept drawing <laughs> him back. Then he made the extraordinary Cree or Craymaster series, which was then shown at the Guggenheim. And I actually went to New York just to see the complete series. And, you know, rather like Boyce, there are some artists who have a vision or you could easily call a visionary whose work is relatively hermetic. It references other things, but it's kind of wrapped within that world. In fact, there's a show of uh, Matthew Barney on at the moment at the Hayward Gallery in London. I went to see it last week. And right. I still find it fascinating. There are, there are artists who make work that are very much in their world. You know, then yeah. they don't look like this other thing. You look at it and think that's this person's work. And Barney is like that, you know. And recent in, in, in recent, like last 15 years or so, they've always been accompanied by films. Mm. So with this last, latest one called Redoubt or Redoubt, I don't know how you say it. There's a two and a half hour movie, right. which you can watch in the exhibition or you can watch at home on Mubi. And I love the ambition of such artists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether you like them or not, I just love when they really wrap the world up in this incredible visual language. It's yeah, yeah. Incredible. It's incredible, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. People who create their own kind of 
call you know we have the marvel cinematic universe it's that kind yeah, of thing but exactly yeah that kind of thing i we i have that's a a, a kind of um meta ambition of everything that I've ever done. I don't know if I've mm-hmm. ever achieved it, but it's kind of certainly Still time. Heaven's, Heaven 17, it, it, kind, it kind of was the case. Mm. But it's like, so, and I think you're pretty similar. It's like they're always trying to incorporate lots of kind of Easter eggs into stuff. Yeah. That can be revealed later. And yeah, exactly. Playful things, yeah. Uh, finally, this has been fascinating. I mean, it's flown, hasn't it? Oh, really? yeah. Um, uh, your favourite synth. I ask everybody this. Wow. Uh, I, I like often really cheap things, actually. I have some really lovely things. I have like a Buchla 200 here, which is beautiful. But actually, I would, if I had to choose something looking across, I'd probably go for the Kilpatrick Phenol synth, which was, which was funded through a Kickstarter campaign. It, it's a bit like a surge synthesizer. It has banana plugs. And I think because I, it's the only synth I took with me when I was on a six-week residency. I was on this Robert Rauschenberg residency in Captiva in Florida. Right. And I wanted to take one instrument with me, and I spent six weeks with it and made so much recording and kind of learned it inside out. You know, so rarely do we have a chance to really no, no, immerse true. ourselves in technology. And I really bonded with it, and I love the sound of it. It has this kind of rubbery, expanded, stretch sound that is beautiful. Oh. And is it um, analog? Yeah. Yeah, analog. Yeah, analog yeah. synth. And um, uh, I, I've mentioned this before, but out of I've done what sixty of these interviews now. Uh, there's only two people who have replicated <laughs> synth. Everybody's had a different. Interesting. Synth. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. Yeah. I wasn't expecting that. Um, Robin Scanner, you're the man. Oh, it's an absolute uh, pleasure. Really nice. It's really nice to see you. Yeah, and um, it'd be nice to see anybody in the flesh. <laughs> I, I, live in, I live in central London, so it's not so bad. But um, yeah, I'd really like you to give me a shout next time you're in London, and we'll go and shoot the breeze. Um, the see your luxurious place. surroundings. Yeah, come and see my luxurious. Pencil. If I can get through security, that is, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, yeah, you'll you'll have to do the facial recognition. Exactly, exactly. with the doorman and everything. <laughs> All right, man. Listen, brilliant. Lo- love you lots, and I'll see you very soon. Fantastic. Take good care. Bye bye. Bye bye. there he was scanner he's quite a uh, he's quite a uh, an interesting character isn't he he's funny um his choices for the um for, for his favorite things was really quite quite amusing and deep and i love that kind of uh, combination of playfulness and profundity it's something i aspire to as well um Anybody who wants to email me, please do on electronically martin with a Y, remember, at gmail.com. For whatever reason, praise, grumble, um, ideas for the show, ideas for guests, um, items that you really liked or points that we touched on that you thought were worth exploring more. That's a good one. Because uh, sometimes we just kind of skip over interesting ideas and then I'm doing so many of these, I kind of forget about them. I can't keep track of everything. So um, I'm, I'm trying my best. Anyway, until the next time...
look after yourselves, literally. Um, be good to yourselves. Don't be too hard on yourselves. We've all had to go through some shit. But um, now we're coming out the end of it, hopefully. So things are looking up. And um, until next time, have a good few days. Bye.